first time in history this week, the U.S. oil price turned negative on Monday, plunging below zero as output exceeded storage capacity and subdued demand due to the coronavirus pandemic grinds the world economy to a halt. What does this mean, and where do energy producers go from here? You are listening to the Business Extra podcast, coming from the National in Abu Dhabi. I'm Kelsey Warner, future editor. With me is Mustafa Al-Rawi, assistant editor-in-chief. Hi, Mustafa. Hi, Kelsey. Historic times. I think it's it's also strange days with, with what happened to the uh, WTI contract on Monday night. Very, very bizarre. Joining us as well is the Nationals Energy columnist and CEO of Kumar Energy, Robin Mills, to get right into this. The May West Texas Intermediate Contract, the benchmark for U.S. oil, reached an all-time low on Monday. Robin, in such a situation, does this mean producers are actually paying potential buyers to take their output? Well, it's uh, in a way, yes, but it's kind of complicated, right? So the, the West Texas futures that we're looking at, this is a is a financially traded contract. So, uh, and, and the traders there you've got, you know, pr- primarily people who are trading it to make money. They never intend to take physical delivery of oil, um, but it is a physically delivered contract. So if you're left holding a contract at the end of the month, you're, you're expected to take delivery. Now, what traders normally do, of course, they close out their positions before the end of the month um, and, and everything is financially offset. So, so, so no physical oil actually has to change hands. Um, what happened this time is that uh, some phys- financial traders did get caught holding these contracts um, and they discovered n- nobody willing to, to take them because the storage space at Cushing in Oklahoma, which is the, the, uh, the, the nominated delivery point for this contract, the storage space there, it's either full or it's all already booked up or reserved. Um, and so these financial traders, who's a guy sitting behind a computer in New York or wherever, of course, he hasn't got any oil tanks, um, but he's suddenly expected to take delivery of crude, and and uh, it's and it's better for people like that just to to pay to 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 get out of that uh, that obligation, and so that's why prices end up going so so negative. Um, now, does this mean that that the that the oil producer themselves sees a negative price? Well, the oil producer is not uh, is not not selling physical oil into this this contract. Um, but however, we did see all of the prices that were posted by major marketing companies who are buying physical oil from producers, and they're all negative too. So in the, basically, at the end of the, each month, the financial contract aligns with the physical market. And yes, we have seen the marketers saying, we are going to buy physical crudes in Texas and Oklahoma and other places for minus $40 a barrel, i.e. you, the producer, have to pay us to, to, to take it away. Um, so this is obviously a pretty, pretty unprecedented situation. Robin, the, the, there's a link between the financial contract, the one that plummeted last on Monday night so dramatically, and the, the physical price for the oil. But is there a link between so this U.S. major benchmark contract and the prices that Gulf producers, for example, Arabian Gulf producers, get for their oil? I mean, some people might be wondering, you know, does that mean that here they're going to have to pay people to take their oil? So, you know, there are three major crude benchmarks globally, uh, West Texas Intermediate, WTI, which, as its name suggests, is produced in Texas and, and delivered into Oklahoma and uh, Cushing uh, Storage Point. Uh, Brent, the UK North Sea crude, which is, is the, the predominant global benchmark. 
uh, and then Dubai Oman, which is, is covering um, a lot of Middle East crudes being traded into, typically into Asia. Uh, and these three markers, they're all traded on futures exchanges, so you can buy and sell contracts for delivery going out many years, um, liquid, transparent, regulated exchanges. Uh, and they all trade generally within a, a quite a close range of each other with a, a few dollars difference at most, which is, is representing partly differences in the quality of the oil and partly differences in, in, in geography and delivery costs. Um, now, WTI is a landlocked crude, so it can't easily get to world markets. And so it, it has tended to disconnect from the other two at times, um, but never to the, to the degree that we saw yesterday of, of going, going negative. And that is a result of the very extreme circumstances at the moment and the, the collapse in, uh, in demand and, and the filling up of storage space. Now, the Middle East producers, I mean, their crude is not going to go to negative prices um, because they're selling on the basis of Brent or, or Dubai. Uh, they're selling into tankers, which can store the oil for a while if needed and can deliver it anywhere in the world. Um, so they're, they're, they're not faced with, with an absolute... Uh, um, filling of storage and, and no options to sell but you know definitely this is, is, is dragging down the prices we've seen Brent um, falling significantly today um, so I'm looking at it now and Brent is down almost five dollars uh, on, on yesterday so far uh, and so you know the, the fact of oversupply and, and, and filling up of storage and the clamps of demand of course is affecting all of the, the major crude benchmarks. Robin, in response to the price collapse, Donald Trump did hold a press conference and outlined some measures that the U.S. government may take to prop up the price, including potentially halting incoming Saudi Arabian crude shipments and the government kind of getting more involved in an industry that it has always kind of held at arm's length. Can you talk a little bit about what sort of precedent these measures would set? And what road it might take us down? Yeah, I mean, this current situation is interesting because it's it's almost like a history lesson for some policymakers, and they're and they're reaching back into the, the dim and distant past for measures that we used previously. So, you know, Texas has talked about restricting production, uh, its own production, to to try to uh, avoid oversupply. Um, that was introduced in 1930 during the Great Depression when there was a glut of oil in, in Texas. And Texas actually deliberately restricted its own production right up until the early 70s. Um, in, the, in the 70s, you had the, the oil crisis, um, the, uh, the uh, embargo on, on, US, uh, on supplies of oil to the US, very high prices. And the US introduced various measures it had to protect its own domestic oil industry then. It had a tariff on, on oil imports to the US for a while. Uh, for a long time, the U.S. actually had a quota on oil, so um, imports of oil could not be more than 22% of, uh, of, of the domestic production. Um, so that was designed to protect U.S. domestic producers. And a lot of these ideas have kind of been dusted off, plus some interesting, rather far-out new ideas. Uh, one is to fill up the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Um, well, for me, that completely makes sense, because if you can buy oil at a negative price, and store it for, for future use, um, then sure, you know, what, what, why not? Um, another idea has even been to pay producers to leave oil in the ground. Seems a, a stranger idea and a lot of practical problems to that. Um, now, we know Donald Trump likes to use tariffs, so he's put the idea, again, of, of bringing back tariffs on, on foreign oil imports into the U.S. Very problematic, all kind of, kind of issues with that. It would raise costs to consumers. It would invite a lot of... Uh, 
uh, avoidance and, uh, and evasion. Um, other, other suppliers would fill the gap unless you're going to tariff everybody. Um, so that's uh, it's a tricky one. That's not to say that, that he might not try it. Uh, and even an idea of putting an embargo on supplies from countries which are judged to be um, uh, dumping or, or trying to undermine the U.S. oil industry, so specifically mentioning Saudi Arabia and Russia. But this is kind of a weird idea because the U.S. last year there was a bill going through Congress to to uh, for the U.S. to to take antitrust action against OPEC for raising prices, and now there's an idea of taking action against OPEC for not raising prices. Um, and anyway, of course, OPEC has and OPEC Plus with Russia has recently done a deal to to restrict production to to increase prices, uh, and that that deal was very much encouraged by the U.S. So, you know, a lot of a lot of incoherent ideas floating around at the moment. I think a lot are driven by the idea to be uh, by the need to be seen to be doing something for U.S. policymakers. If you're one of the Texas Railroad Commissioners who run the state regulatory body, or if you're a senator from an oil-producing state like Texas or Oklahoma or uh, or North Dakota, your constituents are are pretty pretty worried at the moment and are asking what, what you're doing to help them out. Um, but really uh, you know I think there are no no good options and all the options that are out there are even if they offer some temporary relief, they're going to store up a lot more problems for the longer term. And what happens next, Robin? Well I think in the short term, you know the major oil benchmarks are all being dragged down. Um, the WTI contract, uh, the next one expires around the 20th of, uh, of next month. Um, and I expect we'll see a similar crash in price as we did this time, as everybody tries to avoid being left uh, holding the parcel on, on, the, uh, on the day of expiry. Um, as long as storage is, is effectively full or there's no, no available storage, um, then, then, then this will keep happening. Um, and... This is going to persist really until, and low prices are going to persist until a lot of supply is driven out of the market. You know, OPEC is cutting supply. OPEC is cutting OPEC plus with Russia cutting on February levels. It's cutting about 7.4 million barrels per day, um, assuming everybody lives lives fully up to their cuts. And yet we've lost somewhere around 30 million barrels per day of demand in April, and likely to be losing uh, large amounts in May and, and continuing beyond that. Really depends very much. You know, is there, do we get the virus under control? Do do world economies start reopening? Do we start driving and flying again? Um, and uh, you know, I'm sure we will, but it's going to take a while. Uh, and even even once the virus is under control, you know, likely there'll be a, s- a significant legacy of economic uh, slowdown, economic damage. Um, but then that's in a race with how fast is supply going to get cut? OPEC will cut some supply. But otherwise, other high-cost producers have to cut, and they're going to be forced to cut because the price that they're getting is negative, or at least is very low, doesn't cover their costs. Um, now, when the price goes very low, producers don't shut down immediately. Um, but if it goes on for a, for a few months, eventually, of course, they're, they, um, they're, they're forced to shut down. And that will happen, and that, that'll happen in the U.S., onshore U.S., it'll happen in Canada, it'll happen in parts of Russia, and it'll, it'll, and it'll happen elsewhere until enough supply is pushed out of the market to, uh, to bring it back into some kind of balance. A bold prediction from Robin Mills, Chief Executive of Kumar Energy and a regular national columnist. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Also this week, I spoke with an artificial intelligence company out of London. 
that's helping Abu Dhabi's public hospitals anticipate patient numbers and the resources needed to treat them amid the coronavirus pandemic. Here's what Orlando Agrippa, the chief executive of Draper and Dash, had to say about Abu Dhabi's management of COVID-19 so far and what they're forecasting. Abu Dhabi is one of the sort of unsung heroes, in my opinion. The growth of the virus and the acceleration of it is pretty slow. Um, And in my opinion, that's as a result of multiple um, things. One, the screening program, which has been, you know, pretty, um, I would say, in the the upper um, quartile globally in terms of um, people who have done well on the screening program and responsiveness there. Two, the border controls. And we think that that's um, been pretty well managed and, and has helped. Um, we think the, the um, sort of SEHA health systems response and kind of management teams um, uh, leadership around this has been pretty um, next to none. Um, and what we've also seen is that they have embraced technology, you know, clinical insights, operational insights, um, a lot of data. And the countries who've done, wherever you've seen a lot of data leverage to manage the spread of this virus, those mm-hmm. countries have done well. What we can see, um, without sort of divulging anything you know, overly confidential, the system has enough capacity to cope with, you know, um, considerably higher volumes of outbreaks. So that the, there's a lot more capacity on, you know, um, ICU ventilators, etc. You look forward in the next six weeks um, uh, for Abu Dhabi. The, the, there is nothing that concerns us from a kind of impact assessment or analytics perspective that says, actually, you'll be in a jam, right? Because the country that they are closest to is, is a country where the virus has been well managed. So, so far, we're pretty confident that there is enough capacity um, to deal with considerably higher volumes, um, but we don't expect to see considerably higher volumes. That was Orlando Agrippa, the chief executive of Draper and Dash. Mustafa, what do you think of all of this? It's not easy to judge how any country or nation or region is handling this crisis while we're in the middle of it. So it's fascinating to get a different perspective on how things are going here, and particularly with the use of technology, of using whatever means and tools that they can do to help with what is fundamentally a public health crisis, but also is almost a race because we need to get this sorted as quickly as we can to try and get the economy back on track. So we're, you know, one one fight that we need to win to then just go on to another fight that we need to win if we're talking about it in, with, you know, militaristic jargon. But, um, you know, the, the capacity that technology is providing and is growing, and I wonder if there's an impetus um, now to employ as much technology as they can, and, and there'll be a knock-on effect from that. Yeah, I mean, my takeaway from it really is that this is a war being fought across a series of fronts by so many battles. What Orlando really emphasized to me was this idea of this needs to be fought as locally as humanly possible. So to be able to break out this data on a hospital level, bed by bed, it really is allowing Abu Dhabi to play offense on something that, you know, two months ago had us back on our heels globally. Um, but yeah, I mean, really interesting insight, as you say, like very unique to kind of get some real time uh, gut check on how this is all going. 
Well, Facebook's uh, Mark Zuckerberg, what did he say this week in an op-ed that, that the data, the way, the ability to handle data is our superpower, and he and and you know the, being able to use the data and use it well to guide you in terms of decisions and policy is going to be the difference between how quickly or slowly you know we succeed. And I guess days and weeks, you know, makes a difference. And so you know, in terms of that, it's a race, not. I don't think anyone doubts that we'll we'll be able to to kind of control the outbreak, but how long will it take us? Will there be additional spikes? What will the lag be? You know, really, time is such a factor, and data hopefully will help us mitigate the risk. Yes, I completely agree, and I think the more we embrace this superpower, the better off we will all be. Well, anyway, good to be with you, Mustafa, this week as always. Thank you. Thank you, Kelsey. Before we go, here are the other stories you need to know about on the national.ae. More than 100 economic incentives have been introduced by UAE federal and emirate governments in the last 45 days to help the national economy deal with the fallout of their coronavirus pandemic. UAE lenders have tapped 30% of a 50 billion dirham targeted economic support scheme to help businesses and individuals through the COVID-19 outbreak, according to the Central Bank of the UAE. And German lender Deutsche Bank has set up a dedicated sustainable finance team within its capital markets division in response to the growing focus on environmental, social, and governance issues among its clients. That's all for today. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or any platform you listen on. And please do leave a review. All that remains is to thank our production team, Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan. And thank you for listening.